Hi guys, my name is Vince Skillcorn and welcome to Judo Talk. Now, Judo Talk is uh, a podcast that I've started in the hope to talk about everything judo, really. Um, my aim is to talk to you guys about all areas from different techniques to interviewing top coaches, top judo players, but also everyday judo player maybe it's maybe you could be a guest on the podcast um the idea is really to set up a interactive community podcast um that looks at all areas of judo talks about um not just the big competitions talks about regional competitions talks about uh basically what you guys want to want to discuss um in this very first interview i talked to darren warner who's uh, the ceo of Welsh judo. Um, he's also known for coaching Gemma Gibbons and is currently the coach of Natalie Powell. It's a great little interview. We talk about lots. I say little actually. It goes on it goes on for a little while and I suppose that's the thing with these podcasts. I'm, I did do a lot of research around podcasts and how long they should be and in the end I just thought well if I think that the content's good enough and we're talking about things that you guys will find valuable. I didn't see the need to, to say every podcast is going to be a set time. So this one goes on for a little while. It's about an hour and a half in our discussion. Um, but we talk about his journey as a coach to become Welsh CEO. Um, Darren also specialises um, in developing skills. He's written a book um, on developing skills in judo. So the whole thing really is, um, yeah, we go through lots of different things, um, a good chat about that, and I think it'll be really valuable to to coaches out there. Um, so I guess we'll get into that. At the end of the podcast, what I want to do on pretty much every episode is go uh, do some shout outs but it could be if you contact me on social media it could be if you've got an event going on or hopefully you've got an event going on soon at least um or it could be somebody doing something good you want me to to give them a call out um but yeah, so at the end of the podcast, we're going to do that as well. Um, if you do want to contact me, you can contact me on social media. Just search Vince Skillcorn Judo. I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, or you can just send me an email on vince at vinceskillcorn.co.uk. Or just check out the blog, which is vinceskillcorn.co.uk forward slash blog. Um, but yeah, without, uh, without me waffling on too long, let's get into it. Hi Darren, firstly thanks for joining me on the podcast, especially the first one, I know there's going to be uh, a few mistakes and stuff so I appreciate you being my guinea pig. Uh, I guess let's start with, you are the CEO of Welsh Judo but I guess let's start with you know, how you started Judo, what your involvement's been, how you've progressed and yeah let's get, let's get a bit of background about you and, uh, and move on from there I guess. Yeah, um... Well, yeah, I started judo when I was, my first experience of judo was seven. And uh, I remember being the little kid that my dad took. It was actually a permanent dojo, which was quite unusual then. But um, I love the, uh, the idea of it. I was watching these kids throwing themselves around. They looked like they're having a great time. But I was too scared to have a go myself. So the coach came up and was like, oh, do you, do you want to have a go? And I, I was, no, you know, I just clung to my dad. 
And actually, I didn't really go back for like three years. I think there was part of me that wanted to do it. wasn't brave enough. So I'm always really mindful of that first experience of judo. Um, that's how I felt. Um, I then went back when I was 10 because one of my friends did it. And um, judo, judo was a very affordable sport and we didn't have much money. So I can remember my parents just paid for a quarter of a year, some like £3.50 for a quarter and you could go every day and twice on Saturday so literally that was me then I was just throwing myself around I liked the fact that before the session started I could just run it a crash mat and do whatever I wanted to do like some sort of somersault or head dive or just craziness before the session I think I like that as much as the actual lesson um, and like I said I pretty much just threw myself into it. I was doing judo every day because I could uh, my parents were great they had no expectations but they just took me to loads of sports until I found one that I wanted to stick at 16 left home to be a full-time athlete so um, that suggests that I was pretty good but actually the reality is I just really liked it um, and I look back now and think why did my parents let me leave home at 16 I was an only child to do judo when I wasn't even any good I'm sure they didn't think I was any good and um, well, maybe it said a bit more about you yeah possibly um <laughs> but I just really liked it I knew I didn't think I was going to do anything other than judo one of my best friends who was two years older had already left and was British champion like under 21 and I was just clear that that's what I wanted to do um I was full-time athlete for about 12 years so I think I really understand that elite pathway I didn't actually win a British title until I was a senior which shows how I was I was on the junior squad most years and stuff but yeah I didn't probably get really good until I was a senior but um yeah I just I just always enjoyed it if I'm honest I, even then I think if you'd have asked me at the time I definitely would have said I wanted to be Olympic champion and actually if I could be Olympic champion but die the next day I would have taken I'd have bitten your hand off that's how much it meant to be Olympic champion and that's also going back to me understanding what it's like the elite athletes so we've got uh you know about 10 elite athletes here but I just I, I don't forget or I'm at least mindful of just how much it means you know it's like it's just a very skewered perspective of the world at that stage um and so I didn't become Olympic champion um I retired at 28 and then did, did a, my first degree but what was really weird is that you know I in fact Graham Randall was ahead of me, who was world champion. And I'd, I'd beaten quite a few world Olympic medalists, but I didn't get to go because only one person in the weight category goes. But I didn't, re I didn't retire, if you can call it that, or quit, as I said at the time, um, feeling like I'd failed. I was like, for some reason, it feels like a success. And I couldn't put my finger on that. So when I finished, I started coaching, actually, as an elite athlete, just to make money because it was pre-lottery days. Um, and I built up a really successful club of about 200 members in Coventry. Um, and I, if I look back, I like training hard. I like competing, but I love coaching. I loved coaching different age groups and the fact that every age group is different. And, the, you know, from a pedagogy perspective, the way that you engage as people get older shifts and how you motivate them changes is, you know, so judo is kind of just a platform for coaching. Um, so I found it very easy to, just go and do a degree because I already was coaching 200 kids a week and actually I just shifted and um, I think from an identity perspective you talk about being a CEO it's, it's kind of a role I've got but if I stop being a CEO tomorrow my identity is the same which is actually being a judo player 
Mm. So I think what I learned from judo as a young age, but certainly as an elite athlete, was how to just try and be the best version of yourself and constantly be looking to learn. And, you know, the problem with being an elite athlete, as soon as you're good enough to win at a level, you're on to the next level where you're yeah. not winning. So yeah. you look back and go, I say, I say to people, yeah, you know, it's pretty good. I spent most of my time losing because as soon as you can win in Britain, you're not fighting in Britain anymore. You're yeah. just fighting internationally. As soon as you win in European Cups, you're just at A tournaments, as you know. Mm. So it's the same now. You know, you've got Continental Open. You, you win a Continental Open, you probably won't go to another. You just go to Grand Prix. Yeah. And But that's a really good lesson for life, I think, really, is that you're just always challenging yourself. And then you look back and think, I never would have thought I'd be here. So yeah. I think having gone through that whole pathway, I've got a clear understanding of why I stayed in the sport and all my best mates are also judoka you know all people now getting older people like you that are doing amazing jobs that I've worked with um and so I've I think I've got an understanding of why people stay in the sport because all the people I know best are the people that did stay in the sport you know so it's like how do we ensure the journey that we had because we're so passionate yeah. about it you know I suppose um that's something I'd really like to go into because like thinking about how many people go through judo and something that I try and talk to cadets about and especially when they're aiming say for a national champion and they for them it's such a big thing and at their age it is but when you think about how many British national champions there are and actually how many just continue to junior and then how many just drop out? Mm. And not only, like even when you start going through to juniors and even into the seniors, how many people finish judo and they think, I never want to do that again? Mm. Why is that so different? Because I, I completely agree. When I finished judo and I finished at 24, I, I felt like it wasn't the end for me and I couldn't, think, I couldn't imagine doing anything. Maybe I had no other options. Maybe there was no other. But there's plenty of people that I know and I've really respected and I think really good judo players. And we're talking like world medalists that as soon as they finish competing, they don't want anything to do with the sport. How, how, why do you think some people have a better experience? What, what do you think that is? Um, I, I think it's individual. Uh, it, it's interesting that actually certainly for me, not being a world or Olympic champion, I spent a lot of time searching, um, you know, to be better. And, um, but I also found coaching relatively young, early twenties and realized that actually it's not just competing. I love here. It's, I, mm. I realized it was judo. What, what happened to me is that when, um, when I started my degree at 28, it was in sport management. So I think possibly I always kind of knew I would go in this direction. I didn't think I would become a great Britain coach. You know, I was actually just trying to develop myself. And um, at uni, I was shocked. I was just, pretty, actually, I left university with an award for the best student for the highest grade. But I wasn't trying to get the best grade. I was just trying to do my best. And actually, every time I got feedback, my next essay was a little bit better. And I realized that this is something I've developed through judo. You know, so I think yeah. I became very grateful of... Um, what how judo helped me develop but I also had some really good mentors so by moving to Coventry I was thinking about it yeah this morning I, I was doing an interview on leadership actually and I was talking about the best mentor I ever had was a guy who was Neil Adams's 
coach or he ran commentary when Neil Adams trained as a kid and he facilitated Neil going to London. He was the one who sort of said, look, you're, you're not going to become um, Neil Adams global superstar here, which he was obviously expected to. So he knew the pathway that he needed to go to the Budokwai. And so he, yeah. he directed me a lot. He helped me realize how much judo had done for me. And I think he was probably the reason why I didn't feel like I'd failed when I retired, but he also helped me see the pathway after it, which I think was important. So going back to being that kid at 16 who left to be full-time, my best mate who I looked up to because he was two years older had gone to be a full-time athlete. So I saw that pathway. When I finished, I was already coaching. So I saw coaches that were doing really well. So I could see the pathway. And I think for a lot of them, like if they if they don't get into coaching, then it isn't necessarily clear what that pathway is afterwards. And I think a lot mm. of the best athletes, like coaching is very selfless really you, you know i'm very motivated in cr- quality of, of experience for people that turn up like yeah. our, our tagline at welsh judo is this is judo so it's all about values and it's like actually what i've said to sport wales is rather than measuring us on numbers and we have what we had before covid increased quite a lot um yeah. by about 25 percent in four years which is okay um but that that's without any initiatives just to get people into the sport. It's to say, let's improve this quality of experience. And I think what I do know is what a really great experience judo can be at every stage of the pathway. And it's Mm. different as you progress. So I think I just had people that made me realize what the, what the pathway could be. Mm. Um, I, I mean, yeah, when I was younger, the CEO role didn't exist anyway. So I certainly wasn't aspiring (laughs) to that. Um, I think um, I would look like when I finished my degree, I was 31 and I was very fortunate that a development officer job came in. So Mm. what was interesting to me is that chief exec is probably the first role I've had in judo where I haven't felt like I've got the most important job in the judo organization. So like when I was a development officer, I was a schools development officer. I would go into schools, do demonstrations with um, somebody from a club um and then i would get get them to start at the club so i'd be like so what i I was i've always been a bit of a geek so i'd look at the clubs look at their retention levels because obviously i was working for british judo so i could analyze all of those things and i would look at how many tournaments they would do and then i would visit the club and see if like their delivery and their values match what i thought as were and then i would you know Make, probably make the decision. I didn't realize I was necessarily doing that, but I did I get a good feeling for the experience that kids would have. Um, and then I would do demonstrations for them and basically hand these kids over um, mm. to the club. And that worked really well. I remember one of them was Dennis Stewart, who's a Great Britain coach now. And so strangely, when I became a Great Britain coach, it was a completely different role, but working with a similar person. But he probably had quite a lot of trust in that. I remember sitting down with him, you know, he's an Olympic medalist. And I was like, oh yeah, this is how I want to do it. It was actually different to how all the de- development officers did it. They gave us a bit of a free reign to do it in our own way. But when I, what was interesting is because I still work for British Judo a couple of years later, one of the board directors was like, "Why? what were you doing? Because your retention was so high. Like the kids that started Judo through my initiative stayed in the sport for longer. Whereas yeah. a lot of them, like, you know, and numbers that we were recruiting were probably fairly similar. But because I've done that due diligence before and what's the experience that the judo is going to get? Why is this club successful? They stayed, you know. Yeah, so you had less of a churn rate. Yeah, the churn rate was much, much lower. Um, And so that's 
quite satisfying for me because you're doing the same amount of work, mm-hmm. but ultimately you'd stay in the sport. Um, so there was that. And then, I, yeah, I was a great Britain coach. And I think I, I've always felt like I had a good aptitude for coaching, you know, trying to deliver a message in the way that they understand. So mm-hmm. instead of just being, okay, it's this. I'm very focused on what does the uh, player or the athlete understand, having conversations with them and coaching them to the level they're at and how, you know, basically supporting them on their journey. Um, so as a Great Britain coach, there was a few areas, particularly leadership that I felt I had to develop in and I went head head on in trying to do that, the UK sport coaching course. Um, and then after that, when I first finished, um, I was doing coach education as well. So I was lucky enough to do some stuff with EJU, uh, like level three, four and five for them, which is kind of pretty much up to degree level. Level five is a degree. So um, mainly that was national coaches from other countries. So I was able to do coach education for national coaches. And again, like, you know, being a great Britain coach, coaching somebody to an Olympic medal or coaching other national coaches on, and stuff. Every time I felt like, yeah, this is the most important job. I'm really happy with that. And now mm. I feel like I'm watching, I'm supporting everybody else going, you've got the most important job. And I kind of, <laughs> I kind of say that with like, it sounds ironic because the, you know, the certainly in the West, the system is like the CEO role, oh, you're at the top. So therefore most important. I feel like the people that are on the ground having contact with our members are by far the most important. You know, it's just that what I hope is that the organization can benefit from my experience and my uh, knowledge you know, to make sure that they get the best experience on the ground. But yeah, if I'm honest, I'm the least important person in the organization in many ways. <laughs> so when you're, when you're thinking about you're not the most important person, I suppose, how do you, how do you approach it? Because you've got so much experience. How do you approach helping the coaches in those roles? Um yeah it's it's interesting like coaching in particular is a passion of mine so it's easier for me to develop staff that are coaches than it is um nor you know the rest of the staff office you know I, I struggle with the office staff just in terms of like I'm like actually I haven't done this role very good you know they come up with much better systems than I do and mm. I just encourage that but with coaching I think um, I pretty much always did every coach education course that was going. So I did the EJU level four and five. I did um, the BJA level five master's degree in, in coaching and stuff like that. And I, when I did my sport management degree was when I started coaching um, every age, under eights, under 12s, under 15s, senior beginners. Um, I didn't do the intermediates, but I did do the advanced um, and at that stage when I was a full-time athlete, because my coach Neil Adams was the Olympic coach, I was often taking the sessions for the elite as well. So mm. I just coached so many different people. When I finished, I also started doing coaching with special needs. And actually that really challenged me into my coaching methods and stuff. So if I'm honest, I look at the coaching structures. I'm a big believer in using kind of mental shared mental models in terms of this is how we should work. But I guess a lot of it is based on my journey as well. So if I broke it down, if, if I look at our elite coach development framework that I've created in Welsh Judo, there's three stages to it, of which is sort of support coach, coach and head coach. So at the support coach level, it's really about 
getting coaches that reflect and are able to like understand themselves and understand others. So it's just around understanding really. And then at coach level, uh, much more about applied. So to put it in perspective, from a technical pr- perspective, we would I would want them to understand um, the difference between technique and skill. Um, and so for me, technique is pretty much what we all described, the, the shape and the body movement, um, the, the motor program, if you've been really geeky about it. Um, but for me, I think it's, if I watch the Japanese who are the best technical instructors I've seen, they're not talking about, you must be like this. They're t- talking about principles of biomechanics. Mm-hmm. And if you understand the principles of biomechanics, you can apply it yourself. So I think that's key. Um, and at that assistant stage, that's what I want them to understand. It's an understanding level. Do you understand the principles of biomechanics? Do you understand how you coach? So from a pedagogy perspective, do you understand what it is? Same with skill acquisition. Um, do you understand what it is? And then the coaching level becomes much more around applying that. So I think my journey, very, you know, we, we've had some conversations around skill acquisition recently. It's like, if people are interested in it, let's run with that. Mm. So I'm kind of like, okay, we've got these things that you need to be a well-rounded coach, but actually let's go with what you're most interested in and expand on that. So I'm a real believer that you've, in almost anything in life, but certainly in coaching and being an elite athlete, you've got to, you're only as good as your biggest flaws. So you've got to make them well-rounded and you've got to shore up those weaknesses, but you're going to have areas of real passion. And so I think people have success because they've got super strength. So from my point of view, I want to make them as well-rounded as possible, but then ultimately like what are the passions, what are the things that you can drive with them? And then let's run with that, you know? And so, I'm quite fortunate. I've had a few people that I've worked with that I've got, you know, I've done side-by-side coaching or even mentoring where their strength far outweighs mine, but then I'm just learning from them as they, you know, mm. learn new things. So I, I think, it, I think it's around how do you, yeah. How do you motivate people and how do you engage with that? But um, so yeah, the middle level for coaching is around doing, and then the head coaching, which again is reflected on my experiences as a CEO is much more around creating systems and policy and selection uh, procedures and um, understanding how we create culture. So mm. it's, it just steps up to that higher level around, you know, how do we get the team functioning well? And, and um, how do we make sure that everybody is clear on what the mission is? So for me, from a strategy point of view, the mission is always the judo mission, which is to, you know, to create better people for a better society. So even performance, that's what we're doing. You know, it's like actually when you've got an elite athlete, you're showing them that this is how to be the best version of you because you have to be diligent. You have to do everything, but then they can apply that to the rest of their life. Um, Certainly that's what happened to me. So that's always the mission, but then the vision is like, okay, so what's the vision for 2022? Realistically, this is where we are. So we can achieve this. Um, and I will always try and set a vision that's big and very difficult to achieve because people are motivated by that. Whereas if you go, mm. oh yeah, let's try and let's set a vision to pretty much stay where we are. People aren't <laughs> going to run through walls for that, you know? Um, so the first thing I did when I came to Wales was set the ambition of being the Commonwealth Games, which is incredibly important in Wales, the most successful sport in terms of gold medal won. Now we're, we're far from the most um, funded sport in wales 
but you've got to have something big enough that makes everybody go like, oh, okay, that's going to take some work. Um, but it's got to be quite inspiring. So I think, you know, at, at that level three, you need people that can set the vision, but also then break it into chunks that go, okay, this is how we're going to achieve this. This is my part. I mean, so all of these, you know, we create synergy by everybody working together with their different skills. And if I do my bit best, then we achieve it. But we've all, you know, we, we've got to collaborate to make sure that everybody does their best in order to achieve that big goal. So I, I, the way I see my role now is breaking those pieces down that everybody knows what they're doing. They all know how that contributes to the vision that we're going to achieve. Um, and if I'm creating synergy where people are working together um, and, you know, two plus two becomes five, then, then I'm pretty happy, really. That's, that's me doing my role well. I suppose that's um, that leads on really because one of one of the things I find uh, coaching is a lot of the time as a coach you have a lot more belief in the actual players than they have in themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So, like even at the like when I see five year olds walk through the door, all the way up through to any age group, like I look at them and I, I can see them moving on the mat, I can see the fun and like they, they're enjoying themselves, but you look at them and you think blimey I, I really believe this person could be good if that's what they wanted to do yeah how how do you think how, how do you go about trying to instill that belief whether it's an athlete or whether it's part of the the Welsh team or whoever what how do you think the best way to generate that belief is because it's not good enough just saying I believe you're very good yeah you know you know, you, you, know, you think about the language that you're going to have to use and there's got to be some sort of evidence of, of it as well think, yeah no it's great great question that is really I think for me uh, let's hope the answers is good <laughs> me but, too uh, <laughs> Um, now, I, th I think if I reflect on how I do it, um, it really comes back to two things. One is honesty. So they're only going to, if you say like, you can be this so good, you know, if they don't really believe you, um, they, then they're always going to have doubts anyway. Um, so you need to have honesty and trust right from the start. That, like, so I take an example of Natalie Powell. She's the only athlete I work with now, so I can't give too many, too many examples. But um, before I was working with her, I was working with Gemma Gibbons. And I remember just before the London Olympics, um, Gemma had been selected, actually, ahead of Natalie. And I was at a stage where I was quite fortunate that I didn't have to select the team, but I was asked for my nominations. And then they would consider, okay, the holistic, which I thought was quite a good way of doing it. And I sat with Gemma and um, she was like, oh, is, are you happy with the Olympic selections? Is there anybody you wouldn't have selected? I was like, well, I would have selected Peter Cousins, who I was working with, mm. world silver medalist. I'm disappointed Peter's not going. She was like, but are you sure that's not biased? You know, you're coaching him at the moment. I was like, no, I'm 100% sure I'm not biased. And she was like, how do you know? I was like, because I wouldn't have selected you. Mm. and she was like what do you mean you wouldn't have selected me I was like and actually I was sat with Natalie who I didn't know and the interesting thing with Gemma is that she missed out on going at 70 kilos they selected Sally and she had a chance to go at 78 and I was like I, I'll be honest Gem I just worry that you just want a t-shirt and um, you've got that now so and, and she she was quite upset about that and Natalie a really young girl and I was like I would have selected Natalie not because she's better than you but I think she's going to be the number 178 in the next Olympic cycle and for Great Britain the best thing is to prepare give her the opportunity to prepare for Rio 
And actually, I mean, pretty much it was head to head with her and Natalie the next Olympic cycle. But that did two things. One, the trust with Gemma, she came back to me the next day and was like, do you actually want me to go? I was like, 100% want you to go, you know. But when you ask me what's the best thing for selection, I've got a different role. Um, but I will do everything in my power for you to win this Olympics. And, um, and that's what happened. But I, I think, and we never really talked about it that much after her medal. I think that was quite a break, make or break moment where I was able to get those cards on the table and say, let's not just get the t-shirt here. Let's really try and win a medal. And she's like, okay, do you think I can win a medal? Yeah, I do. And this is why I think you can win a medal and break it down. So that comes to my second point. One is the honesty, but the other is you've got to be able to explain what you see and why. So the lucky thing for me is that when I see athletes, I see a lot of coaches struggle that as soon as somebody gets a medal, they think, oh, they're the best thing. They have no vision for what they could look like. And mm. what I see is that it's almost like... Um, just a list of competencies. And I'm like, oh my God, if they just improve at this, this and this, they're going to be awesome. So I, I feel like whenever I see an athlete, I see what they could be, not so much what they are now. Um, so that makes it very easy for me to articulate, if we just improve at this, this and this, I'm going to be really interested to see what happens. And actually you can't say why they're going to be Olympic champions. So if I go back to Natalie now, um, I had a real vision of, you know, that I'd said to her, for you to be Olympic champion in Tokyo, you need to, you know, be this weight, you know, so we had to put weight on. Um, you're going to have better defense from the hips. You're going to, you know, and so I broke it down into judo competencies that I want to see. And I was like, I want to see who can beat you when we've developed that. I think that's good enough to be Olympic champion. And interestingly, she's developed those things. We had a lot longer because of COVID. And actually at the Masters, first tournament back, she was pretty close. There was definite improvements there. I was sort of like, actually, I, but now that you've achieved that vision that I had for you, I know what's next. We just need mm. to be a bit faster here. We need more Ashiwaza in this position. We need this. So I think you don't need to tell them what they're going to look like an Olympic champion. You just need to tell them what the next step looks like. And if they can see that that's really easy for them to achieve and they trust you, they are, in my experience, at least, maybe it's my enthusiasm for their, <laughs> for their um, development, but in my experience, they, they will go with that. And do you find uh, do you find that's easier with the women than the men, or do you think there's a different approach um, depending on who they are? So, for example, do you find it easier for for some people just to follow the process? You know, there obviously mm. there's lots of research behind obviously being process orientated and stuff like that. And do you think that's easier just to keep on setting the, the marker for a certain type of athlete, whether it's female, male, or how would it differ if they actually just wanted to win? They weren't really that bothered about. Yeah. I think what happens is if they just want to win and you, so for example, I'll go back to Natalie now. So the first time I coached her, um, Olympic qualification event, first one of the Rio cycle, actually. Um, and I was just in for three months to coach her to the Commonwealth Games. And um, first tournament I'd done with her and she was really not confident in her fitness. So I was like, actually, I'm not interested in you went trying to win today. And what impressed me about her is that she could be the worst person in the fight for the whole fight. And if in one second she had a chance to counter them, she had no problem with walking off the map of the winner. And a lot of people have got that sense of injustice that they like even it out. So that's quite unusual. But I was like, actually, I'm not interested in, I just need the data. If we're going to win the Commonwealth Games, I want you to fight flat out on every fight and we'll see when you die. 
And actually she lasted a lot longer than she thought she would. So she surprised herself. So that set expectations. Um, she won a medal. So it was the first Olympic qualification event. She was the only British athlete that won a medal as well. So there was a lot of confidence building there. And so that was a whole new concept to her around rather than thinking about winning. It's like I set a clear process of, you know, this is what I want for this fight, but I want you to do it as hard as you can for as long as you can. And so you just lead them to be in process driven. And then that was probably, you know, it was the first Olympic qualification medal. So I think that leads to trust and confidence in you as a coach. So then you start talking about process, you know, process leads to performance, whereas you can hope as much as you want that you're going to win a medal, but that's not helping. In fact, it's probably only making things worse when, you know, when it's really important. So I think you just build that trust over time. Um, and now we break everything down into parts. So three stage of, goes back, you know, pretty much um, as you would see goal setting set up in academia of like, you know, process goals, performance goals, uh, outcome goals. It's pretty much exactly that where we'd say, okay, outcome is to beat this athlete. The performance goal is to control the sleeve. Um, and then the process are the drills that we would do in order to prepare you to be able to control the sleeve. And so if, if we say control the sleeve or win the sleeve battle, she's got a load of processes that enable her to do that, that she would just autonomously fall into, if that makes sense. But so yeah. my job as a coach becomes around identifying the key characteristics within a fight that are going to make sure that she wins the fight. I have to identify what are the right processes that we need to develop. And if we develop those, um, she'll win, you know, because we all want to be Olympic champion. Well, I definitely did. You did. Mm. You know I mean, so what, what I'm trying to do is create a process that makes that possible as opposed to just sitting in a start wishing for it to happen. So uh, tell me if I'm wrong. So do you believe one of the keys to being a successful athlete is being able to follow a process, being able to start here, continue on a journey and be willing to, to buy into it. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think it's to be able to follow a process. I would also probably say to enjoy the process. Hmm. So actually for me, I, I left British judo after Gemma won an Olympic medal. And you'd think like in many ways, it was a, it was a, great fight um she fought really well that day and you think oh what a way to finish but the truth is afterwards i was reflecting on it thinking like wow you spend all that time trying to win the olympics or win an olympic medal i achieve what i thought was my ambition as a coach it's just a competition and actually it's mm. not that different in fact i felt extremely let down that it wasn't my life didn't change but you know um, actually i saw um obviously sally's just announced she's retired i saw a quote from billy and i don't know whether he came up with it but yeah. billy kusa he said um it was basically along the lines of if you are if you're not enough without the medal you definitely won't be with it yeah and i i when i read that i thought blimey that's so true and it, like yeah. that really hit home to me no i, I read that was yesterday it was really powerful was there what he put mm. but it's exactly that i think um so that's my experience actually um with natalie now is so she had the same thing that i'm always talking about it's, it's the journey you know what i've mm -hmm. learned about judo and the reason i didn't feel i was a failure even though i didn't win those medals is that actually I learned how to enjoy the journey, you know, so mm. it's not just about understanding the process, but you've got to enjoy the process, you know, so mm. that's what the Japanese do. And that's why I think judo was created is that judo is a, a 
process that they just put in place you know it's a platform for you to enjoy this journey that's why mm. it's called judo it's the the way to mm. you know so i think it's we lose sight of that at times but interestingly when nat won a world medal and, and also when she became world number one sense of disappointment for her i think it was like actually nothing's really changing here and i was like well yeah that's because the whole point is to enjoy the journey to it like, it's great that you've got there mm. uh, they're the things that you put on your cv or whatever but actually you've just got to enjoy the day to day and i think post london olympics i've i think i've always enjoyed the journey anyway but i'm just more mindful of it so the best thing for me of the tokyo olympics is now every day working mm. on stuff and then when it when you've come up with um made the joke about it like if um if you put a process in place and they develop that skill and it works in a fight as you know like, it's like predicting the future you're like oh it's mm. the incredible feeling you know and so it it is at the tournament is where that's where the proof is in the pudding you know did it work or not and you know the lows are the biggest lows but actually it's it's those processes you put in place and the journey that you create with them it's that funny actually while when, when you're talking about um judo's the way i was thinking about because uh, obviously throughout covid we're as a club we've run socially distanced and online for the whole time so we're nearly a year into it and there's been lots of people saying well it's not judo it's not that but i think pretty much the opposite i think it is judo judo for us is a community like yeah. we we have 200 kids that turn up to their lessons online they get to see me i get to see them we get to have the relationship now we can't throw each other around yeah. but what we can do is we can have a check-in we can practice some of our skills our balancing our twisting you know like we go over more technical knowledge ideas we talk because that's what it is part of their community group. And they you know, for me, it's, it's knowing that whenever all the schools were closing and there was so much uncertainty, they knew on a Monday, or Wednesday, whatever the days were, they knew they could just turn their computer on and there would be my ugly mug in front of them. There'd be some energy. And I didn't always feel energetic, but I felt yeah. like it was my job as their coach to be there and help them through this time. And, you know, we've worked all through the summer. It's been really difficult. And this last lockdown has been super tough for all of us. But I feel like now when we go back, we've managed to get ourselves a full-time dojo. The kids really understand what judo is. Yeah. And the parents look at us because completely differently because we were just what operating out of club halls and stuff like that. They're actually thinking, well, every other club, like clubs that could have continued online, all stopped. Yeah. And they're thinking, well, actually this judo club's a little bit different. This is part of our community and the council look at us slightly differently. And I think that's a really important point of what, what judo is. And I think you're talking about that's what it is at elite, the elite level. That's exactly what it is to me at mm. the lower levels as well. I, I think so. I mean, it's interesting because we've got, you know, like you said, a few coaches. So our, our pathway coach, Stephen, he's done a phenomenal job as well, but just engaging. So we started our pathway program, 13 to 18 year olds um, at the start of 2019. So it's a, it's a relatively new program. Um, and for that first year, done a phenomenal job with engagement. And probably the, the moment where I thought we had the right guy is I asked him like, how do you know it's going well? Um, and he, he was sort of, describing the experience and how much they love it and we we're getting a lot of positive feedback from parents and and i said okay this yeah that's a good example i was like how do you know you're creating better people and he said well there's this kid he's got 
really bad stutter and um, I've got him to take the warm up quite a few times and he's, mm. he's starting to be able to communicate to the whole group. And I was like, that's what I'm happy about. I'm happy about yeah. going beyond what judo is to making better people. And it, judo is the, it, it, it's a premium product anyway. We undersell it massively. I've never known anything. Well, yeah. It's like getting a Rolex and selling it for two quid and then nobody <laughs> wants it. You know, it's, I can't see a way of making it any better. It was like perfectly designed in that way. We've got to see a way like we've discussed before about making it fit for the 21st century because mm. people are focused on the past. And I think maybe podcasts and videos is definitely the way that the world is going and we can't ignore that. But ultimately I, that made me think, yeah, we've got the right guy here. And then over lockdown, he's done a lot of Zoom stuff as well. So the mm. same sessions, it was every Tuesday and Thursday, the sessions still does the same time, but on Zoom, as soon as we could do socially distanced stuff, I, I want for that age group, this is probably where my role comes in with the vision is that I want them to remember judo for the rest of their lives. So, you know, mm. for so many of them, the first time they'll ever go abroad is because of judo. Um, and so he was it doing was for me, yeah. yeah, you know, and so me too. And um, he was doing stuff like it's socially distanced, but they're running in the sea or they're running up sand dunes. And it's honestly, I saw the videos of how hard they're training. Mm. I'm just like blown away by that. But are they having the time of their lives? Are they, they're doing stuff where that's probably one of their best memories of this COVID era, you know, of a period they're going to remember the rest of their life. And that's where I'm like, that's, that's what that is judo. It's like, are they having the best possible experience that we will always remember? Yes. Good. They've done judo today. Do, do you know what I mean? Mm. And that's where I feel proud of him and what he's doing with the group really. But I'm kind of like, that's my checking challenge as well is like, you know, the parents are coming and go, oh, that was great. You know, it's mm. just, that's the whole point. And so there's so much more you can do with them. And do they want to get a grip of each other and throw? Of course they do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but actually his retention has been incredible, you know? So I look at my own kids and, you know, it's just so bored now, you know, staying at home all the time and stuff yeah. like that. And I think, I think these kids, um, young people, most of them are pretty lucky that they've got something like that in their life. So rather than trying to do it for the whole association, um, we focused on what we were already doing and looked at, you know, that was already his role. How can he continue to do that? But I have to mm. say, similar to yourself by the sound of it, he's done an incredible job at remembering like, what's the point of all this? And mm. um, coming out, turning, turning a difficult situation into an incredibly positive one. So I have to take my health, but I also think, yeah, that's, that's the that's the way to go. It's a good way of doing it. Yeah, it's tough. And I know, especially speaking to lots of coaches, I think I definitely try to work quite hard to help coaches because it's not easy, but I think at the end of the day, it's still valuable. It's still a valuable experience for everybody. Yeah. Um, and you know what? There's stuff that I've learned teaching on Zoom that those skills, like I always try and, I always try and think, because I, I don't particularly see myself as having a job. I don't, you know, I don't really have a skill set. Like uh, when I talk to Sam, my wife, but I always say it's a good job I've got judo because I can't really do anything else. Mm. But like, 
I've done some lecturing at universities and stuff now and like just even being on Zoom, it makes me think about the words that I'm saying, the way that I'm presenting it. How do I create that engagement that you create in the dojo? How do you get the kids up for in the dojo? Well, how can you create that on Zoom? These are all skills that actually, as you go on, no matter what role you're going to do, they're all going to be skills necessary to progress. Mm -hmm. And I think it only makes the product of judo better and the product of your coaching. And I think, yeah. you know, coaching is... Coaching is a lot of different things uh, in it for clubs and elite. It, 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 you, they require a different skill set. But when you're stood on the mat and you've got parents there and you've got the kids there, you are presenting and you should know your judo like the back of your hand. It should, that should be the easiest part of your job, teaching yeah. judo. Yeah. It's how you deliver that. And it sort of brings me back, you know, like when you were talking about when you're, when you're trying to create that belief of trust, using trust and using evidence, I suppose none of that really... It doesn't matter. You could you could have trust. You could have the evidence, but if you can't deliver that in the way that that person understands, it's all useless. And that's where I think the coach earns earns their weight in gold. That's what the coach does. It delivers the right information at the right time. Uh, you know, because and I think this is something like Luke, my old coach. I thought Luke was really good at that. I thought yeah, Luke was really good at creating that trust. Uh, you know. I always try, if Luke said this was what you had to do, I trusted him and I believed they, and he just knew how to communicate with me and he would yeah. tell me to stop being an idiot or, you know what I mean? He would be able to judge when he needed to pull me in line or when he needed to put my, his hand around my shoulder. Yeah. And I think that as a coach, especially as you start moving up the levels, is actually where you think, blimey. Because, you, you know, yeah. it's hard, isn't it? When you, when you look now at uh, elite judo and you see the coach not allowed to say anything, sat on the mat, they've got to sit there, they've got to watch and trust that they've delivered all the good information that they need. But actually, that's still enough for a player to, you know, like if I think about something like Ashley, when Luke's not around, he, he can be a different person. It's yeah. just that they look different. They stand taller. They, they're just a whole different person having their presence. Mm. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And Luke's a great example of that. But I think, yeah, <clears throat> with athletes I work with, I could write 20 pages on what they need to improve on, but they're not going to improve because you offload it all. So what mm. tends to happen is you have these things. And then when the opportunity comes, oh, you go, yeah, this is the opportunity to improve on that. So, and usually it comes from a loss where, mm. okay, like, you know that actually they need to circle in or things like that. If you tell them, oh, you need to circle in, if they get if they get three shidos and disqualified for stepping out of the area then they're going to listen they're going to start circling in so you kind of got to know um when is the right time to to give them your knowledge i guess the other thing is that like you said luke's a great example of that i and i've worked with him with the gb for a while but um quite a long time but i think what you also touched on that we probably haven't mentioned is that you knew 100 that he's every decision he's making has got your best interest at heart. It's mm. not about the system of Camberley. The Camberley system mm. is to put the, each person at the centre and do what's best for them. And that's quite difficult to do. Certainly from a governing body point of view, it's difficult to do, but you have to find a way to do that. Mm. Um, because then if the athletes, what, what I've often felt is that I'm just one of those people that probably work incredibly hard for somebody. So then they're almost like, God, if he's doing that much work in order for me to win, I, 
I also need to step up. <laughs> they always yeah. get guilted into it. Um, and I think Luke does the same. You know, I've seen, and Billy, you mentioned Billy with Sally, the same, you know, you just put your heart and soul into it. They almost feel obliged. Like, oh yeah, I've got to try my hardest here because you, I can't believe it. And I've seen it with so many top coaches that when a coach arrives with a real reputation and, you know, and actually coaches just love coaching. It doesn't matter mm. too much what level it's at, but to the, to the player, they're kind of like, you've coached world Olympic medalists and you, you're doing everything you can. So I win my first British medal. Like it's incredibly yeah. humbling, but it does make you think, yeah, okay, I need to do that. And I, I think the good thing for me is that I can already look at my coaching career and be fairly happy with it. You know, it's not going to change. Um, if Natalie wins the Olympics, slightly better, but not massively different really. Do, mm. do you know what I mean? And actually as a person, I don't think it'll make any difference at all. I would just look back probably on that journey more fondly. Um, but it, it goes back to that trust that, you know, this is somebody who's trying to do the best they possibly can for me. And therefore I'm, I'm going to give it, go all in here. And then once people trust you, who knows what can happen? Like most mm. people's performances that they, I've never ever worked with an athlete who didn't feel they could have got better results than they got yeah uh, whether the world olympic champions all of them felt that actually if i'd have just done this i would have been even better so most of us have got the handbrake on to a certain extent on what we can achieve so i kind of feel like it's our role as a coach to get that handbrake off and just see where we get to you know because who knows what you could achieve it's certainly much higher than you've kind of imagined mm. um and I, I, that's um something really interesting as well it's something that I think we talked about before, but it's definitely obviously because we run our judo club as a business. So I try and do a lot of research on how to make the business work a little bit better. And there's lots of stuff that talks about being risk averse. And when you're talking to people, naturally, they would rather not lose a fiver than win a tenner. Yeah. And that for me, when I was reading that was like a massive eureka moment, like thinking about coaching and definitely even as an athlete, when I was fighting, I, I know a lot of the time I fought within myself when I fought really well is when I was just fighting. Like when there was no real thought, there was no real thought of winning or losing when it was just in the moment. That's why I think I performed better in Randori than I did in competition mm. and getting, how do you, and that, this is the tricky part. How do you negate the risk enough to them that they see or want to go, well, I don't mind losing because yeah. what I'm after is better. I, th I think, I, <laughs> do you know, that resonates with me so much. So I'm kind of like, I might go off tangent here. But actually, one of the things I haven't ever seen this in a coaching manual. Um, but one of the things that I work out when I start working with an athlete and within my position at GB, I would work with people for four years, say, mm. but they would already be on the British squad when they'd get to me. And so you're having to build a relationship and you're trying to understand them. And one of the things that I always worked out is that how risk averse are they? Mm. You know, so that will massively impact on their fight strategy. So, so many people are saying you need to do this um, and they don't do it. And they, well, I've told you, you need to do it. You know, you just need to like engage chest to chest. If they're really risk averse, that's just not happening. So if you don't understand them as a person, and actually I remember Craig Fallon's a great example where when he would train, he would just engage. And, but mm. he, he was, he wasn't just fighting. He was learning. 
what happens if I do this? If I move my hips slightly, I'll, I'll get thrown there. Oh, don't do that again next time. And mm. it was like a constant, um, constant engagement that I saw that he learned from. Whereas with other, Natalie is a good example. I keep using her because she's the only one I've got at the moment. She's very risk averse. So actually what I tend to do is put her in situations where instead of saying in Randori, go chest to chest, she's not going to want to do that. I made mm. that the training drill where it's like, okay, you have to be in this situation. Um, the other thing um, is one of the things, especially when we went to Japan, what I used to do with a lot of the British team is people tend to score their randories if it's a competition. So you need to try and shift their mindset. So the Japanese have got incredible reactions, as we know, you know, they're great judo players. So I would create a scoring system where, okay, so you have to fight. And if you throw them, you get 10 points. If they throw you, you get they get 10 points. If you, if you counter their throw, you get 20 points. Mm. Um, if you counter their counter, you get 30. And you watch, like, my perception of Olympic judo is that you've got guys that are countering the counter, that counter that. But the only way you can get good like that is to just engage, you know? So yeah. what I said was, okay, when we're in Japan, these guys are good. Uh, we know that. So what I want you to come off, and I don't want you to say whether you scored more than them. I want you to come off and, you, yeah, I got a 70 on that one. You mm. might've got thrown, but they're not getting 70 on their own. So if you're just engaging and trying to counter their counter and you're learning in that way, like you're finding a way, you've, I've created a scoring system that is encouraging them to forget everything they know about judo um, and just try and win in this way. Um, mm. And and you can get thrown and have success because like if, if you've almost counted them two or three times, but end up getting slammed massive, you're still coming off going, wow, that was 70. Like, you know, yes. I've, uh, I've nailed that one. And so it's yeah. that perception and that mindset and stuff. And I think, Probably I don't see that enough. If I'm honest, I, yeah. I suppose you're 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 trying to create ways of data input, aren't you? You know, if you consistently do the same thing, you're going to consistently get the same answer. And you're, I guess, trying to create. I say fun, as fun as Randori yeah, in Japan sure. can be. Uh, <laughs> as when fun, you're at the end of a seventy. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> so, yeah, but you're just trying to create a way that actually. Judoka, like they're not looking at this as a round dory session. They're looking at this as creating experiences, mm. creating reactions, creating more knowledge. I mean, I think going to a lower level for me, it's about I try and remove judo as the the barrier because, especially for young kids, I think judo is quite quite weird it's quite a weird scoring system it can be quite difficult for younger kids to to understand yeah, yeah. and I think actually like just creating different scenarios for them to wrestle from or different you know just changing the rules completely so when we run competitions we don't uh, so this is like our club competitions we don't use Ipon or anything like that we use a different scoring system yeah and you know like and sometimes on the day of the competition we'll change what the scoring system is or there might be one technique that could win the competition or lose the competition you know what I mean Brilliant. so there, there's just ways that it will just what I don't want them to do, because saying, I think judo is quite a brutal sport for beginners because it's not just beginners, it's their parents as well who take them along and they watch their kid, they bow, no experience, they run on, they get frame frip on, they're off back they're in off, the car. Yeah. And they could have been waiting four hours for that fight, you know, but if you guarantee that they can't lose on the first, you know, if you just say, oh, to win, you've got to get two points. 
Okay, so essentially you're just making it wasaris yeah. rather than ippon and wasari. And they know if they get thrown once, they've lost a point, but you know they've still got a chance to get up and go again. Yeah. And actually, by simplifying the rules, what we find so like before COVID, when we were running a competition, we would have say 200 kids turn up for our club competition, and we would do two groups. Both groups would be four hours, so 100 in each group. Every kid would be guaranteed three fights because they would be in pools. So it would all be guaranteed three fights. The parents would know exactly where they are. And by the end of each round, of the, the parents would come out to go, oh, thank you very much. We understood what was happening. And I think that's a huge key yes. to keeping the kids engaged is getting their parents to go, well, actually... I turned up at an, a sporting event that I didn't realise, and actually I understand. And the kids come away thinking, "Well, I, I sort of understood what I was doing," yes. you know. And you can change the rules, you can change the gripping. I think sometimes judo gets too. This is what judo is, you know. Like, think, look at Mongolia as a judo nation. They didn't all start doing judo. No. They started doing wrestling. You know yeah. what I mean? Like the skills are so transferable. And I think if you just see it as this one tiny spectrum of what judo is. It, it, it doesn't allow their create creativity or them to get their ownership over it. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, what you're really talking about there is constraints led coaching where you're, you're constraining what they can do, but that leads to a new behavior. So, mm. uh, you know, that's basically constraints led coaching um, in a nutshell. But I mean, I remember I, I fought once, um, what's the uh, Sambo wrestling, so oh, really? I turned up, turned up to the British Open, the Sambo wrestling, because I was told that oh, if you win this tournament, you're going to go to Panama. I was like, oh, that's fantastic. I've never been to Panama. So I went there and um, I went out this first fight and there was one guy there who was um, uh, wrestling, uh, you know, um, Olympic wrestling, massive shoulders. He was just suplexing everybody. And um, he was the weight above me. So they were on first. I was really glad he wasn't my weight, you know, but... Every time he threw them, he just got three points because you had to stay standing and he was just suplexing everybody. So I, on my first fight, I remember I did a massive Uchimata. Like, Neil Adams would have been proud of it. It was so high, <laughs> you know, like, literally would have been winking at people in the crowd thinking like, oh, I've nailed this. this. is brilliant. And he was like, yeah, three points. I was like, what? It's the best throw I've ever done. And he was like, <laughs> and then obviously it's similar to judo. They don't expect you to start having a conversation with the referee in the fight. I was like, what have I got to do to win? He's like, <laughs> He's like you, you've got to stay standing. Oh, no. I was like, oh, right. Okay. So my next one, I'm tired toshing him. So it's an upright thing. And I've looked at the ref like, is that okay? He's like, yeah, try a point. It's like you've won. It's just a good example of um, how you just amend your skills to, to win. Do you know what I mean? So mm. in judo, the Uchimata would have been one of the best throws I've ever done. But actually in Sambo, it was three points. Um, <laughs> and then, in, you know, the standing Taitoshi was, was a full point sort of thing. So I think you can, you can develop people's skills just by changing the rules. I think that's something, I mean, I hinted at that with... Um, with the Japan scoring system, but that's something I try and do a lot. It's just take the rules away and then say, okay, you're trying to achieve this now and you're trying to achieve that. And so what I also realize is it's a really good way of developing gripping actually, you know, people mm. like Britain and everybody grips hard because everybody you've seen grips hard, but do they know why they're gripping hard? What are they trying to achieve here? And so mm. when you actually say to them, like, look, the whole point of gripping is, for you to have a position you can throw from and put them in a position where they can't attack, 
that's success. Whereas most of them, they just try and get a good grip. They don't think about their opponent's ability to attack, you know. But when you just create a, a game, I remember I used to do a pull the bout out game where like you took it in the back and you, okay, you've got to try and get the bout. Um, all right, this person, um, you've got to try and lift them up. So what's he got to do? You've got to lift me up. And, you know, you, they make sure you know the rules. And then you create rules where they don't know what the other mm. person is trying to achieve. Like, okay, you've got, took your bout in, right, off you go. And so they, th- they start off thinking he's going to pull my bout out, but actually they get a point from lifting you up. And then at the end of it, you go, so what was his rule? How did he get a point? And they go, oh, I think he got points from lifting me up. So that's what he wants, right? That's judo. You need to work out what they're looking for. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because most people, yeah. people just dive into what am I trying to do? But mm. If you work out what is it they want, you can, you can, increase your chances of success massively by yeah. do you know what I mean and so the, the truth is their coach will probably just be shouting out anyway so you can work out what they want um but at the elite level there's that level of decision making is like what do they really want because they'll yeah really well um and f- being able to win that battle I guess it's funny actually you talk about that because um, I think it's literally just being sort of the end of last year I try and review like what I I think about judo a lot and I was thinking about how I teach judo and and I think actually from teaching zoom as well it, it it's made me really sort of evaluate what what I'm delivering and why I'm delivering it's made me think about the first technique I thought that should be taught was taitoshi okay so I thought you should encourage kids to turn their back get them going for it this is what judo is turning their back and I like the fact to do Taitoshi you do a nice kazushi break their balance and that was like pure judo and then I was thinking to myself well what happens every single day in randori or at competitions our kids get hold and because I've drilled them at you must go for Taitoshi as soon as they they go for their Taitoshi the other person jigger ties so what I'm doing is I'm already setting them up to fail. And uh, it made me think, well, actually, am I teaching judo right? Am I, judo isn't just one person decides they want to do this. Judo is two people doing stuff all the time. Mm. So for me, I was like, well, the pool most probably is the right thing, but the technique's the wrong thing. So one of the things that I'm going to start working on is actually the first technique's Ochigari, because it's obviously mm. a nice big pool set up for the, but then I was thinking, well, actually all techniques, maybe we are looking at how we teach techniques, like especially say Uchimata, where you grab the end of the sleeve, we teach a nice big pool, Nobody can do Uchimata like that anymore because everybody's got a grip. It's so difficult mm. to break the sleeve down. You can't use two hands. So actually, most probably, if you want to attack with Uchimata, gripping by the elbow is most probably a bit more appropriate because you can break the balance yeah. more. So actually, I think when you when you take learning judo techniques, I think trying to learn them in singular modules like this is a Taitoshi is, is actually slower and not as you know beneficial to the person trying to learn judo yeah so certainly how i grew up is like okay so you need to develop a taitoshi you need to de- develop a, a sianagi you need to develop a koji um one of the things i learned from um kanemaru yusuke who's japanese olympic coach he was over here for a year is kind of their japanese philosophy of linking the techniques together so mm. you know they talk about having a judo tree and it's like what techniques suit me and developing from that. And I think it's a bit different to how I grew up with here. So um, as much as it's around learning a technique, but it's kind of like, how do all these things link together? How does the reaction from one lead to something else and stuff? So 
I think that could probably start earlier as well, you know, but mm. it's like, like you said, it's around setting those expectations around what's okay. And actually people are just desperate to win, aren't they? It's like, how do I win? And I want to try and do that. And then everybody's got stiff arms and, you know, mm. nobody, nobody achieves anything. So yeah, I, I, I think that those first, those first three bouts are really crucial in terms of their judo experience and their expectation around how they engage and how they judge themselves, I guess. But um, yeah, I, I've lost count of the amount of kids I've seen that, you know, they've reached orange and green. They can't, they can't be thrown. And so, you know, they're mm. not going to stay in the sport much longer because that's the stage where you're probably going to be doing quite a lot of throwing, um, you know, so there's a big sticking point there. That's for sure. Yeah. And I think, do you, do you think a lot of that is down to, uh, so I, I, basically there's more too much randori and not enough sort of moving uchikomi and nagakomi and that's my belief and that's something for especially for the younger ones I, I yeah there's a heavy focus on less randori as in normal randori mm. and more focus on actually trying to get some movement and practice in that what's your thoughts on that um well i'm a bit of a geek for skill acquisition and technique mm. and stuff like that anyway so i think i have a few thoughts i think remember when I was at university and I was, like I said, I was coaching all different ages. So I really got to try and I realized that that technical input kids I was working with at least didn't really seem to take it on board till they were about 11. They just mm. in terms of how much they could learn and how quickly they could learn. So I remember reading something at the time that said there was three stage, three types of coach that you'd need. Like the first one just makes you fall in love with the sport and that was definitely my experience. So I was kind of like, if we do lots of movement activities, it's very fun and engaging. You're, you're not spending too long talking to them, but they're learning how to control themselves and having fun um, and understanding what the sport is. That's kind of the role of the first coach. And then the second coach is the, the technical coach. So we're saying, so for me, I, as I've evolved, I think it's more around understanding the biomechanical principles than it is just do the technique like this. Um, and then the third coach is this kind of skills coach that enables you to learn how to apply that in Randori. Mm. Then if, if I look at it from a skill acquisition perspective, um, there's a lot of different theories and a lot of them contradict them each other or they argue with each other. Oh, that's not the way. But what I've learned from judo in terms of what resonates with me is um, by practicing Uchikomi and Nagakomi, we're in almost ingraining a technique, you know, ingraining a movement pattern. Um, and so what people, people argue is that that's not relevant to the movement. And so I don't believe that. I think if you, if you practice pretty much all the techniques in all movements, and so you're developing all of these movement patterns, when you're then in an environment that's open, you, you're, you've basically got more options to try and apply. So what's kind of been proven is that the first time you do something is the most difficult. So, you know, um, neurologically there's uh, myelin laid from the brain so that every time you create a movement, um, you can then do it again and it becomes easier each time. So that's why once you become really competent in movement, it becomes smoother and faster. Um, and basically your brain is just um, layering myelin. So it's a little bit like, every, if you imagine, um, let's say a Cianagi 
it start, starts in the brain almost like a copper wire that shoots down, almost like this movement pattern, like lightning. So the first time you've done it is the most difficult. Um, but then the next time you do it, it's almost like the plastic wire that goes on top. And the more times you practice it, the thicker that gets. Mm. So that that's sort of one school of thought in terms of motor learning. Um, and then from a ecological dynamics perspective, if that has already been laid and then you put people in situations, uh, which is what you're doing, Randori, you tend to be in the same situations all the time. Um, you start to try and apply it. So it becomes real. And I, interestingly with Kano, you know, he moved away from jujitsu, which was actually the, the motor learning that we've just described to mm. Randori and recognize that you, you need both. You know, he's very clear that you, you need to practice these techniques. You need the principles Kata was not intended as a way of saying this is the correct technique. It's a way of reminding people of what the principles were, um, mm. which I found quite fascinating, really, because I was very much not with, I didn't grow up understanding Kata, and I still hear people saying, oh, it's useless and stuff. But actually, it took me 30 years to learn principles that I could have learned in a week if I'd have just taken the time to look at the Nagano Kata. So I find those that principle-based learning interesting. But, but you need Randori, um, the problem is, like I said, people tend to turn it into a competition and it's not a mini competition. Mm -hmm. It's a way of learning. So if you can set different parameters of what success is, um, then actually they can develop skill even more. Like if you say, rather than trying to explain to people that you want two techniques for techniques to work, like Sinagi and Koji work perfectly together. Mm. Um, but rather than explaining it to them, if everybody got Koji, and see an Aggie, and then you create a randori where you can only throw with Kochi or see an Aggie, knowing that they work well together. Um, they're going to feel that they're going to be like, Oh, that actually works really well. Like, you faint, Oh, I went for Kochi, and then I go for see an Aggie as you resist it, or I go for see an Aggie, and because you go into Jigatai, I can just sit you backwards with Kochi. Once they've done that, you, you've saved yourself a lot of time, you know. So, it's kind of, mm. I think, I for me, when I'm when people are younger, I would probably try and do a lot of movement pattern work, um, and probably as they get older, probably do less um, mm. and more, you know. And the the amount of time you spend doing randori probably increases. Um, for me, probably somewhere in between is the constraint stuff that I was talking about. So I very rarely just do open randori. I almost always do a situational practice where I've just set parameters for you to work with. And, um, or um, we identify that you need to fight really strong left-handers or so when, if you're on an international training camp, you just identify people that fight in the way. So from a skill acquisition point of view, that's called affordance training where the affordance is what does the environment afford you? What opportunities does it give you? So you're choosing a partner that affords you that left-handed tool situation that you're looking for yeah um so i'm probably very focused on that as well so it's not just about doing randori it's around what what am i trying to what parameters am i trying to set here that work towards that outcome that we want or what partner can i choose that is basically the environment that you're training within that also develops the skill that you need so it's no it's no surprise that when you fight somebody all the time in your club you just end up cancelling each other out yeah um and so the worst fights when people from the same club fight because they just know each other but that's the thing mm. is because yeah you've learned how to deal with that style right so if you fight somebody else who's a world champion but he fights just like your mate 
you're like, oh God, yeah, I can do really well against the world champion. But actually that's because you've been in that situation a lot. You've learned the, mm. the way to, to do it. So actually, what we should be doing is exposing them also to as many different scenarios that they're going to face as possible. Otherwise, you know, you get really far and then you just have something you can't deal with at all. Um, and, you know, that that's a disaster really because if you get to a performance level and suddenly you just have one thing you can't deal with, but three people in your weight category, that's yeah. that thing. I suppose that goes back to your um, data input analogy earlier as well, doesn't it? The more more exposure, the more experience you can gain for them. Um, I guess the more the better chance they're going to have. Yeah, I think so. I I think that's the difference between a teacher and a coach, really. So the teacher is that technical guy who biomechanically corrects it and says, "Look, it's it's not that. It's this." For me, coaching is being on the journey with them and saying to them like, okay, so this is what I think just happened. Or actually before that, you say, well, what do you think happened there? So you know where they're at. And then you go, well, this mm. is what I saw. Um, and, you know, you probe it together. And then, you know, it's like making understanding of it. And go, well, actually next time, could you try this? Could you do that? Um, and then with the experienced coaches, of course, we've seen these situations before. So you're like, Jose Inui does this how they stop it uh, you know and you're like mm. oh, all right but actually that's why it's coaching because as soon as there's an issue there that they want solving and you pro- provide them with a potential solution and then it works when it builds trust that we talked about earlier they start to think like, oh this guy knows what he's talking about but ultimately they're having success as well so it's success builds trust if you've told them the right things and it works then they, they start to trust you going forward mm. Yeah. Well, I'm a little bit conscious of the time. I've kept you going for quite a while. Now, before we do go, though, I just want to say, obviously, we're all hoping that we're going to be opening up our judo clubs soon as we can. Uh, what would say we've say we've got loads of coaches going back. Their clubs are going to be full. How would you if you could give them two, three pieces of advice that would say, right, if you want to produce an Olympic champion. All right world champion some somebody who wants to progress within sport or somebody who wants to have a lifelong involvement with it how how could they do what could they add to what they do in the club what would you what would the top three things be top three um probably the top one would be um every good coach i've had made me feel like the most important person on the mat so you know when i turned up and there was 30 people on the mat as a kid, the best coaches have got a way of just making you feel important. They have engagement with everybody two or three times on a session, but that bit of engagement is important. So I think as that progresses through the pathway, that becomes athlete centered coaching that I was talking about where you're always making decisions based on the profile of the athlete, how risk averse they are. Um, so I, I think, yeah, focus on the experience they're having is probably my top one. Um, in terms of, coaching or teaching i learned a really interesting thing from um guy called tony minicello who was jessica ennis's coach Mm. he was talking to me about we were talking about feedback and he said um the problem with judo he's like so complex he said so i saw this guy and because he was based in sheffield he'd actually seen somebody teaching his technique and he was like oh yeah you need to pull the sleeve and put your hip across and foot more and he's giving them like 10 different things to improve (laughs) on on the next one it's like it's the worst teaching I've ever heard because it's so complex. 
And how he explained it is that when he, t- he is a rarity, he coached Jess Ennis, she walked in as a beginner and she walked out as Olympic champion. You know, he coached her all the way through that. And he was talking about how he coached her high jump. He's like, look, when you have high jump, you do high knee lifts. And he was explaining why I still don't really get why they would do that <laughs> movement. It's like, then you take off. He's like, and then you come over the bar and then you land. He's like, and actually within each of those, there's key movements that you need to make. But if your knee, knee lifts great, but you take off wrong, you will try and correct that when you're in the air. And he said, so I could say, oh, your takeoff was terrible. You arched your back afterwards. You, you feet kicked to get over the bar. Didn't work. But ultimately, the takeoff was that first bit where it went wrong. And then after that, all of those things were possibly trying to correct it. So mm. you just check, just give them feedback for the first part where it starts to go wrong. So a judo throw is the same. So, okay, so you create a space. Um, partner moves away from you. You start to step in. Um, you drop your body weight underneath them. If they, if they step in too close, they then drop their body weight even further. But actually, it's like, you don't tell them both of those. You just say you stepped yeah. in too close. And what, mm. what I see an awful lot is people give them 15 feedback points and he's like just run it like a video the second where it hits that um they're starting to do something wrong just stop it there nothing else is is relevant because it's a knock-on effect from everything else mm. um so just, yeah just just coach to that key point and then I, I tried that afterwards it changed things a lot for me in terms of teaching biomechanics where um people improved a lot faster because of that mm. so for, in terms of teaching technique that's probably my, my best coaching teaching point coaching point um and then my final point i would say is under understand the difference between technique and skill um and applying mm-hmm. it and how that works so i i personally feel that you can teach the biomechanics of a technique but for skill you want to put them in the situation um, and create parameters that help them find it um and then what what also works really well is that when you, when they do find a solution, you need to explain to them why that worked. So there's, there's a kind of model of like unconscious competence where it works all the way up step by step. So unconsciously unable to do something, um, but you don't know you can't do it. And then you see somebody else do it and you're like, Oh, I can't do that. So then you become consciously unable to do it. You do mm. lots of repetition and you can consciously do it. And eventually you've done it so many times it becomes unconscious, unconsciously able. But what happens if you've done enough um, technical work and then you put them in a situation, often they're unconsciously able to do it, but they're not yeah. consciously able. So if they're unconsciously able to do it and they, they don't understand why, then it falls down. So when you get somebody that they've done something and like, you know, they just did this fantastic Uchimata you need to then go back to them and explain why it worked. Oh, it was really good because you put your weight here. They moved around. That gave you the perfect timing. Mm. Then they're consciously able to do it. So you, you, you need, sometimes you need to work backwards. It's not always that linear step-by-step thing. Um, so for skill, I think that's important is making sure that once they've developed a skill, they understand it. And in terms of Olympic champion, um, yeah, I saw that with Craig Fallon, who was a world champion. And actually, as he really wanted to win the games. And uh, I was working with him I remember him having conversations with his coach Fitz in Beijing even where I was there and it was a bit around like but why am I good and I I kind of remember at the time thinking I I wonder if you know because he had such an intuitive feeling for judo 
But did they ever go back and go, this is why you're so good. This is why what you're doing is working. And actually I got a chance to work with him. He did understand why, mm. what he did. He, he did understand it. Um, but that's important. If you're going to be that good, it's not enough to just be able to do it. You need to then go back and explain to them. Mm. And then, um, yeah, you know, go back to Gemo. I remember before the Olympics that th- th- because I'd seen that with Craig in Beijing and that, ultimately it wasn't the case he did understand it but it led to my thinking of going it's very very important that when you get to the most uh, important tournament of your career which is hopefully the olympics that you know why what you do works because you're going to have serious doubts and so i did a whole piece of work around video in their best moments and actually going through why that works Mm. um and i remember remember Gemma saying that she never had to watch that because she we, you know, we went through it. She didn't have to watch it then. She knew it was there, but it was kind of, that was there anyway, just in case those doubts did creep in. But I think, yeah, you, you need to have a good understanding of, of why what you do works. Um, but ultimately, when you step on the mat, it's, it's got to be a, got to be autonomous. I think um, I, I lived with Craig for a few years at Cambly, actually. And I remember where sitting down over like just eating the dinner or something and like some of the stuff he would say about judo, it was like he was talking about a different sport. Absolutely. It was like, it was just, and and I've heard people talk about, you know, he's just phenomenal. He's just a freak. He was just able to do this. He was just, but he wasn't, he really, he really knew judo. Like he, and like him, I once, I, I, well, I tried listening to what they were saying. Him and Steve Gorefork were talking about Nawaza. Yeah. And I couldn't, and it was partly because of Gawthorpe's accent, <laughs> but I couldn't get to grips with what they were doing. And they were like 73 moves ahead of anything yeah. like that. They, and it was just complete. It was so, such a, what's the word? Uh, an experience where I was just like, gee, I thought I knew a bit about judo, but I just really yeah. don't, you know, a humbling sort of experience. No, I, do you know, it reminds me of like, because obviously Craig worked for Welsh judo uh, for a short mm. period before he passed away. But at, at, for part of the job interview process was you had to take a session and um, I'd set the challenge or the task that they had to deliver a training session on uh, Malonga, the French world champion. And we had some really good candidates and all of them, like, you know, you're writing your notes around what they do and all of them, not all of them. Some of them were very much what I, I thought. And I was just like, yeah, this, this is good. All right. Exactly what I think. It was, and then Craig, I've just never seen that before. What, his explanation mm. of what you should do was just so far beyond my understanding. <laughs> like I, it made sense to me because he explained it to me in the idiot that I am. But I was just like blown away. I was like, oh my mm. god! Like he sees it completely different. Um, <laughs> I don't know what I thought I was doing, but it's not that. Um, yeah. But I also looked at my sheet, and it was a, you know an hour session each of them. And for everybody else, I've been, oh, this was so good. They did this. Oh, I'm really impressed with their, the way they walked around the mat and they controlled the group. I didn't write anything for Craig. <laughs> I just mm. sat and watched it. And um, actually yeah. for the short period he, he worked for us, that was, I would go in and watch every session that he was taking because that's mm. what it was like actually. So I think a few people thought, oh yeah, but did he really know what he was doing? It was incredible. Was, mm. The only thing I would say is that I kind of, almost had to drop can you explain it on my level because i'm not yeah. i'm not getting what you're talking about here you know but yeah. the thing is that and this comes back to being a great coach as well isn't it is that it's it's a judo so complex it's like being a really mm. 
smart engineer and understanding all these things, but actually our job is to make it as simple as possible. You've got to make mm. it so doable. Um, and that's what I saw that he did is he had a way of taking this most com. He, he clearly felt like he had the answers to the universe, but he was able mm. to, to just make it one or two points that made it really clear. Um, yeah. And so I, I think that's key as well, you know, in terms of, make sure you pitch it to them. Like what, how do they understand, you know, and I'm not talking about, Oh, what's their learning style or any of that sort of mm-hmm. stuff, but just, you know, if, if they don't understand it, that's not them being an idiot. That means yeah. that you need to explain it in a way that they understand you're, you're mm-hmm. an idiot for not explaining it in a way that they can, they can understand really. And I think what I saw with Craig is anyway, just him, the movement, you know, even the parents that have seen judo for the first time for some of them, but you can just see that that's how it should look. Mm. Uh, and um, I think so. And the other thing, considering we've been talking for over an hour here, but the other thing oh, that yeah. people, um, <laughs> people tend to over explain it, but actually if you let them see it, that's mm. the thing as well. So I think there's so many good video resources now where, um, where you could learn by just watching other people and, you know, there's, mm a lot of the best judo players I've seen, they kind of just learn, you know, social learning theory is where you just copy others. You look at kids on the street, like they've got so much football skill because they watch YouTube channels of Ronaldo or Messi. Yeah. And then they just play with it and, tr- and try and do it. And nobody's saying, oh no, no, your weight was too far here. Just, they're just exploring it, you know, but mm. this day and age with the opportunity to have video feedback, that just enables them to be their own coach. They can just watch mm. the video and go, oh, that's not what I thought it looked like. I need to lean forward more, you know? So you're just increasing their opportunity to, to reflect. And ultimately you want that anyway. Um, but I, I think there's so many more ways we could coach judo than we currently do. It tends to be like a teach coach model, whereas actually, yeah. you know, like, like I said, social learning theory, a lot of the best judoka I've seen I've almost followed that model, you know, um, mm. and, you know, go back to Craig again, his ability to engage, but then to work out what was going on and then refine it next time, try something slightly different. You know, you're not coaching that. They're just, um, <laughs> you know, hopefully you can have a conversation and you can explain what he learned so you could tell somebody <laughs> else. But, um, but that's, for me, that's what an Olympic champion looks like. It's somebody that within mm. the fight is not reliant on what anybody else is telling them. They, they constantly fit, you know, feeling the situation and able to make adjustments and decisions based on that. So mm. yeah, that's kind of what a world or Olympic champion looks like. So just tell it, get, you know, creating an athlete or a judo player that just completely listens to you, possibly the worst thing you can do anyway, you know? So, so yeah, sometimes yeah. I feel like we've got a, a lot to learn. Yeah. Well, thanks Darren for being, uh, yeah. giving me so much time today. And uh, one thing I will say is, I know you're not going to mention it, you have actually written a book for skill development in judo, haven't you? Yeah, I have, which is why I can talk about it so much now. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, and skill acquisition for uh, skill acquisition in judo from theory to practice is the name of it. So one thing I would say is it's an academic book. So kind of a starting point of taking all of the theory on um, skill adaption and uh, applying it to judo to say, okay, so this is what the theory says. This is what it means to judo. And for me, it's just a starting point. There's not much out mm. there um, around that. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to have started contributing into that space. Um, 
hopefully it will lead to loads of conversations. So if people are interested in talking to me about skill, um, I can do that for quite a few hours. Well, what I'll do is I'll definitely put a link onto that on my website as well. Okay, thanks. And uh, yeah, hopefully if uh, in the future we can jump back on and, and have another chat about a few more bits. Brilliant. Thanks, Vince. Yeah. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, thanks, Darren. Thanks a lot. Cool. Cheers. And that's the end of the very first Judo Talk podcast. I want to thank Darren once again. He gave me so much of his time. I know he's most probably busy and give me that much time. But also the honesty of how he was talking as well, I think is really valuable. And whether you're a Judo player or a coach, I think there's a lot to be learned there. And, you know, moving in the future, hopefully we'll talk to Darren again, but I want to talk to other high-level coaches, but also, you know, judo players that are in the clubs, how they're, they're experiencing our next guest next week is going to be something completely different. And I hope, I hope that uh, variety will really help uh, judo coaches and judo clubs um, with the way they, they think about judo. Um, I guess it just leaves me to say, you know, if you want to shout out, I want this podcast to be fairly interactive. I want to promote judo events. I want, you know, I want this to be uh, a community podcast as well. So you just contact me. It can be on social media. Please follow me on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, also, if you've never checked out my YouTube channel, I'd really appreciate that. There's hundreds of videos on there um, that you can check out. Or you send me an email on vince at vinceskillcorn.co.uk and definitely check out my blog. My blog's something that I'm working really hard on to put out judo content that's going to help you guys. So yeah, so please check that out. I want to say a couple of thank yous as well. During the lockdown, my wife and I managed to secure a full-time venue for our judo club and we got a brand new mat area and part of that we we raised uh, some money for that through a raffle um, so I want to thank Nick Fairbrother at Coca Kids so I'm going to put uh, in the description a link they do some great judo books um, for, for children really really good thanks to Fighting Films who donated a prize to Neil and Nicky Adams also to Robin Sadler he donated some prizes as well and apologies if I've forgotten anybody in the first instance I'll make it up to you in the next podcast um, but yeah I hope you enjoyed it did you like the format do you like the length um, yeah get back to me I really really want to make this podcast work and I look forward to speaking to you guys on the next one talk 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 talk